It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. Right. Grasshopper. We, we, we just got in the grasshopper, too, and guess what, folks? That's not uh, Peggy Malecki. In fact, uh, that's what, something I was going to be sending out to the folks on Restream. Uh, we've already got a good morning from, from Dan Costa, um, and uh, I just sent that message out. And you'll That's Kathleen Thompson, by the way, folks, uh, who gets a ding for stepping up to the plate here this morning and being part of the program you don't have no, a ding i don't have a dinger yeah i know and and is, there is... It, is my picture clear yeah clear that's yeah. too bad <laughs> i was kind of hoping it would be a little fuzzy uh no nah. uh you are you are absolutely lovely although if you want me i can give you uh, for that joke <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we should explain uh, explain what is uh, going on here, um, and that is that uh, Peggy is kind of uh, under the weather today. Now I will say, it's not COVID, so don't or anything could be anything that could be right. Nothing, nothing like that at all, um, but something else. And um, she did not have a uh, a restful night. And, um, so she's trying to sleep right now. Um, and, uh, so, uh, it is me, it is I, it is Kathleen sort of, uh, bringing us, uh, into the show here. Uh, Kathleen is in the, uh, the upper, uh, the turret, uh, of the, of the house where, uh, she does magical things with, um, face, not Facebook, but YouTube, the YouTube stream. Um, and other things. And today she's probably going to even be uh, uh, giving us, uh, helping out with the chat uh, a little We're bit. We're going to give it a shot. Yeah, well. I we, think <laughs> I know what's going on. Uh, well, if you go on to it, you'll see that there are some folks there. And, and some people have never seen you on camera here so or met you. And uh, um, you, you get your chance uh, right now. I'll so, say hi to them. Uh, please do. Uh, we have a great show today. Um, as always, uh, we try to 
to do the best we can and, and get good stuff here on the program. But we're going to be talking first about something we started to discuss last week. Uh-oh. And I just noticed Kathleen Lagata is is now slinking away. Because slinking she, away. You, she, you got off she doesn't, your radio personality. I she know. Didn't. That's our kitty for those of you who are uh, The listen, energy's wrong for if, her. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast and, uh, uh, and don't know who Legata is, well, you see her in the video at the top of the show always. Uh, poor little kitty. She, she just can't deal with it. So you'll see her upstairs uh, very soon. She'll probably come and sit on your feet. Yeah, and, probably. And and hang out for a little bit. She so, had a rough night, too. Yeah, she did. She did. She's got a little issue, too. And I think um, a trip to the vet is, is going to happen yeah, tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but back to what we were discussing, um, Peggy and I started chatting about this last week. And uh, those of you who live in the city of Chicago, and even those of you who do not live here, um, heard about this weird situation where Amazon delivery lockers started showing up uh, in public parks in the city. Now you might even see them in businesses because they're in businesses too. And Oh yeah. They're in businesses all over the place. Right. Um, and Whole Foods, of course, because they own Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and however, they started showing up in the public parks too. And they made a key error. It was a mistake, actually, putting it in a sidewalk. I mean, when when all is said and done, and when we talked to our first guest here, Juanita Irizarry, who is the executive director of Friends of the Parks, um, I'm sure she will uh, uh, agree with me about that. It was a tactical mistake because it called attention to what was going on uh, with those uh, delivery lockers. Uh, because they put it in a sidewalk in the path of strollers and uh, 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 people with disabilities um, and dog walkers. And there was this, it, I likened yep. it in my blog post to the the huge monoliths in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, it's exactly what they look like. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, the mistake is that they may own Whole Foods, but... We own the parks. That is the you know? point. And I was just going to go into. Of course you were. Bum, 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 Your bum, random acts. That's right. I can't help it. I need I need my music, except if I played it, uh, then uh, I would get a message from YouTube. And they'd say, no, there are rights to that music. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that and some other issues that are going on in uh, uh, the parks uh, because uh, Friends of the Parks is a watchdog agency, uh, and this is what they do. And uh, we've talked with Juanita on the program before, um, and it's always a pleasure to have her here, and we're so glad she joins us. Um, after that, I've got the book here. It's, uh, it's going to be going sort of a whiplash kind of show, because we're going to be talking kind of serious issues about the parks, and then we're going to be talking about tropical plants and how to love them. Um, however, for people, gardening is a serious thing, and your tropical plants, uh, keeping them alive indoors and out, it's very important. And Marianne Wilburn is just great. She is terrific. She, 
she is. She's she's a great talker and she's just a lovely person. So. And she will be reporting in from uh, Virginia, where she lives. We've already checked uh, that today and the connection seems good she she has internet issues there so she has to go to a friend's place and sit oh uh, that's right yeah she can't even do it from her own home so this is why we're passing infrastructure in the united states of america in the year 2021 to get internet to even fancy people who write fancy books it's it's pretty remarkable uh so she then she, she will be on and then finally meteorologist rick DeMaio. Uh, sent me a bunch of stuff this morning about Hurricane Henri, uh, which is headed for uh, New York City. But um, I don't want to uh, give away the the punchline, but I will. He's he's calling it right now a non-event for New York City. Now for other areas, oh. that, yeah, I'll, he said they'll That's probably. He says three to five inches of rain, but uh, I in in other ways. Uh, it will not be a catastrophe, apparently. This is what Rick is saying. That doesn't mean that places like Connecticut, where our friends live in Hartford, Kathleen, uh, are not right. going to get slammed by this hurricane. Um, so I will ask him specifically about the Hartford uh, uh, yeah. forecast. Say, is Judy Handler going to be okay? Right, that's exactly. That's what we want to yeah, know. And that's the way I'll put it. I'll say, Rick, is Judy Handler going to be okay? And he's going to say, who's Judy Handler? Um, but uh, so he will be here with all the latest on the hurricane and, and obviously uh, weather and climate uh, issues. But right now, uh, most people are focused on Henri. So, um, all right. Uh, anything else you want to bring up before we get to our guest? Oh, oh, yeah. I uh, I just wanted to tell people that we did our first Instagram reel. Oh yes, <laughs> and we got three thousand five hundred and eighty four views. Oh, that ding didn't go very well. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, this is you know, Instagram and well, all of the social media, of course, are the bane of my existence. But um, they are interesting, and we've realized that uh, some work better than others, and weirdly i did this what was it like a, a 40 second video out in the backyard the other day i think it was even shorter than that i think it is it's very short we pop it up on the reel on instagram and suddenly it's got 3500 likes go figure i have no idea um it's only got 3500 views sweetie it's got oh i'm sorry a substantial number of likes right substantial you're right but views i'll take the views i really will so all right, Kathleen, thank you so much. Okay, uh, I'm going to go work on the chat. Uh, you do that, and uh, you'll be talking to Kathleen today, folks, and, uh, and we appreciate it. So let's, let's go right now to our guest. Uh, that is Juanita Irizarry, who, as I mentioned before, is the executive director of Friends of the Parks. Hang on a second, because uh, I believe me, I was doing all of this on the fly this morning. I got to make sure that Kathleen's mic is turned off so that uh, all that extraneous audio doesn't come. There we go. And now we're set. Uh, Juanita, good morning. How are you? Oops, now i got to turn on your mic. There we I go. I haven't had my coffee yet, but, you know, I'm you ha- okay. You, ha- you haven't had any coffee yet? Oh, dear. No, but let's see how well I can do without coffee. Oh, I am so sorry. I, I would have made it for you had I known. <laughs> I, would, I would have had it uh, delivered. Uh, um, it, it has okay. been a, uh, a busy week for you, hasn't it? Oh, yes. It sure has. 
Maybe that's why I haven't had my coffee yet. I tried to get a little extra sleep to make up for what a tough week it's been. Yeah, all I know is that all during the week, and, and you were gracious enough uh, a week ago when the the story we we're going to start with broke uh, to say, yeah, I'll, I'll come on the show and, and, and we'll, we'll chat about this. Um, and then other things happened. Um, and I, whenever I would try to get a hold of you during the week, it would be, I've got a meeting. I'll be, I'll be with you shortly. I'm, I'm in a meeting. I've got to get to a meeting. Um, you, you have a, a lot of meetings, uh, when, um, when things get crazy in the parks, don't you? Well, you know, we, we do try to vet things internally and talk about our, our policy approach if it's needed and, you know, our strategy and, there was so much breaking news um, throughout the week to re- react to that got in the way of other things that were already on the schedule. So, yeah, yeah it was particularly crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had the DeSable, uh, uh unveiling on uh, Saturday, didn't you? That's right. Uh, once a year, we remember um, Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable. His death was in the month of August, and so we have an August commemoration and wreath laying ceremony and this year was particularly exciting because we've heard the mayor say that 40 million dollars are going to go into not only completing the park but making sure it's well connected to the river walk um, with statues of DeSable and Kirihawa and we keep gathering new partners um, to, to do that work with us to keep making sure that all of this does come to fruition so that was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, and uh, what I want to start with for friends, uh, or I'm sorry, for folks who are not familiar uh, with Friends of the Parks, how would you describe your mission? Mm-hmm. Well, a watchdog organization, as you've mentioned, is a really uh, good way. Um, we're a 45 year old nonprofit, and um, we were started in response to folks who were looking around at. Um, disrepair, lack of maintenance in Chicago's parks 45 years ago. And at the time, even um, that disrepair often was even in downtown parks, whereas today we maybe might be a little bit more focused on the difference between um, the the care of parks as we think about equity and how much doesn't get invested in West Side and South Side parks. Um, but but we uh, our mission is to inspire, equip, and mobilize a diverse Chicago to ensure an equitable park system for a healthy Chicago. So you know part of what we do is we respond to issues, but we really want to mobilize others to respond because this is a really big city with a lot of parks, about 600 parks and play lots, and we need Chicagoans to be the eyes and ears of what's going on in our parks. And uh, I'm I'm just glancing at uh, the chat room here and one of the first questions is what's the status of opc um which is the obama presidential center um and uh scott that's on our list today it is one of the things we're going to be uh discussing um but uh to start we're going to i'm going to grab a photo or two here uh here's one that uh I took the other day. This is an Independence Park uh, on the near northwest side of Chicago, Irving Park and Springfield, basically. Um, and it's um, it's an Amazon hub. Uh, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, this this is the kind of thing that uh, suddenly started appearing in uh, Chicago parks. 
the art of the first uh, I saw of this was in um, uh, Block Club, Chicago, and uh, and while we're at it, here's uh, here's another one. This is up at Loyola, um, and this is also in the Loyola Beach area. Um, this is Haas Park. This is indoors uh, at Haas Park. That's at Fullerton and California, basically, in the city of Chicago. And and one more thing. It's, it's not just that there are these boxes here, but did you know, Juanita, that they have names? Um, no. Here it is. Hello. My name is oh, Rain Bear. So they're very, very friendly uh, boxes. Uh, they want people to, uh, I don't know, bond with uh, with the boxes uh, somehow. So that's. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I read about this. I, I woke up, I, I think it was on Saturday. The report had been done on Friday. Um, and my eyes must have bugged out of my head when, when I saw that. I said, what? Are you kidding me? Really? This is this. How is this happening? And in the article. Um, Mina Bloom, I believe, wrote it. Uh, she talked to uh, the older woman there uh, in the 33rd Ward. Uh, and uh, the older woman had no clue that this was going on. So right away I started thinking, this is odd. Um, the older person doesn't even know that this is happening uh, in a park. And of course, as I mentioned before, uh, the in her park, the park in her ward, this uh, Amazon box uh, had been dropped right on a sidewalk, blocking uh, all kinds of traffic, and, and um, which, as I said, is it was a tactical error uh, on their part because it really called attention to to what was going on. So, I wrote to you, and I said, Juanita, did you know about this? Did you know this was coming? And you said, No, not really. Um, uh, and it made me think that, uh, wow, we've got a story here because, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of transparency. So I'm going to allow you to tell your part of the story about how this unfolded and, and what you discovered. Yeah. Well, I had actually first heard about it through a communication from Alderwoman Rodriguez, um, earlier that day, only a few hours before I got a call from Mina Bloom. Um, from Black Club Chicago. So it all unfolded very quickly. It was it was indeed shocking to see the <clears throat> the hub Amazon hub box on the sidewalk, which is absolutely beyond. And as you've mentioned, you know, they they triggered this attention by doing that wrong, right? Um, because it turns out there are a number of parks that already have these boxes. And I got to say, it's been COVID, and I personally have not been leaving the house a whole lot, although thankfully I have a bit more since I got vaccinated. Um, but I had not even seen these. And I don't use Amazon, so I didn't know it was a thing. So the whole thing was very big for me. Um, you know, with Friends of the Parks um, historically has really fought against privatization of our parks. Um, and we've been talking a whole lot for a number of years about how everything for the park district is about revenue generation, right? Um, and unfortunately, too many of their decisions are led by revenue generation rather than by their mission. Um, and so they forget that um, 
the purpose of parks is not to come pick up your package from some commercial vendor. Um, while that may add some convenience to some people, it, it also adds some concerns in my mind uh, around safety, um, both in terms of, you know, do you really want to get held up at the Amazon box while you're trying to get your package? But also for these boxes that are in public parks that close at 11 p.m. or in some cases earlier, but the box is just sitting there and maybe you get off work late and you go pick up your box and you're on a park district land after 11 o'clock and the cops come and give you a hard time, right? And we already know how hard life is for people of color who, when they are out and about just trying to live life, um, have... Uh, encounters with police that are turned very bad very quickly right you so, know you're saying yeah. that and and this photo here was taking taken at dusk and you can see the lights uh, on mm-hmm. the box too, which will encourage people to come by and you're right and I hadn't even thought about that part of it that the parks close at uh, 11 p.m. and and sometimes earlier depending on the situation uh, and uh, that could cause some problems. That's right. You know, and we, we, we worry about that in particular all the time. Um, any confusion that may come up, um, even with different closing times for parks. But, you know, we, we live in, in a reality where people of color, especially African-Americans, you know, it step foot in the wrong place at the wrong time at, for very innocuous reasons. And, you know, you may end up in a, in a very dangerous situation, right? So why would we have these um, these business lockers that don't believe belong there in the first place in a, in a place that really might lead to actually violence. Yeah. Uh, and some people would argue, and I'm going to put, uh, this shot here, uh, to, to illustrate my point. Uh, some people would say, well, guess what? That's, that's tucked out of the way. That's really not, I mean, you've already brought up some objections to why they should be there, but in terms, not all of them were placed on sidewalks. This is kind of uh, behind the building, uh, (laughs) next to the dumpster there, I know, because I took the shot. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's, that's almost beside the point, isn't it? It, That these are public parks, public property, um, and there was not, a lot of attention, uh, well, there wasn't a lot of effort made to inform the constituents about this. Right. Well, and I will say my own personal Facebook post about this issue when I first heard about it, one of my friends said, hey, I saw one in Portage Park. It was behind the building. It wasn't really a big deal to me. It was out of the way. And I was like, well, you know what? It, you may not be bothered by it, but we live in a city where Friends of the Parks gets called all the time from people who are concerned about um, big you know, billboards in tunnels on the lakefront, and even um, even Crane Chicago Business, you know, had some comments about, you know, what's next? Are we going to have big signs for video gambling in the parks? You know, just because it doesn't obstruct your ability to use the park in terms of like walking down the sidewalk, doesn't mean it doesn't obstruct the beauty of the park. I mean, what is the purpose of the park? We are there to go see nature, not to be bombarded with commercialization and signs and other things like that, right? So that's that. But then there's the process. Um, So, you know, after we heard about this thing, Friends of the Parks, actually it was this Monday morning, we were in our staff meeting, and all of the staff just kind of went around and said, 
did any, did we miss this? When was this talked about at the Board of Commissioners meetings? Because we always have someone at the Board of Commissioners meetings and it's not always the same person. So we were all kind of, you know, checking our notes and trying to remember. And we were all like, no, I don't remember, you know, this coming up at all. Um, and so as we, um, you know, further looked into this, and, and in fact, I, I spoke to Greg Hines at Crane's Chicago Business throughout the week. Um, he he actually confirmed for me that no, it hadn't come up to a, at any um, Park District Board meeting. There had not been a contract reviewed and voted on. Um, and it turns out that the contract numbers are small enough that according to the park district's rules, it doesn't have to be voted on by the Board of Commissioners. Interestingly, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business asked the board chair of uh, park district, uh, Avis Lavelle, about it, and she didn't know about it either, right? So that's interesting that something of this magnitude in terms of the impact on parks, in terms of what Alderwoman Rodriguez noted to be a predatory business, you know, one that a lot of people have real issues with also uh, coming into our parks, um, that that decision would be made without even the chair of their board being aware of, of the issue. It, it, because the controversy has obviously become a very big one and brought a lot of negative attention to the thought process and, and transparency or lack thereof of the park district. Yeah. In fact, as you notice, when you've got Crane's Chicago business reporting on this Mm -hmm. in a negative way as well, you know, you've hit a hot button. You really Uh, have because Crane's is totally, totally, totally pro-business, right? (laughs) Yet here they are asking questions about commercialization of our parks and and imagining worse things that this, the slippery slope that this takes us down. So this is a big deal. Yeah, it, it it is a big deal, and uh, as a result of this, there there was a petition uh, put up, which um, I'm not sure I included in my blog. Um, what I might do is, I'll tell you what, I will send the link to Kathleen, and she can post it in the chat so people can sign up. We did it last week uh, while we were talking about it on the show. It's up to eleven, not quite eleven thousand signatures. Woo-hoo! All right, <laughs> isn't that amazing? All right. Uh, That's it, really great. Yeah, it's good. To, I mean, it wasn't done by us. You know, we've boosted it a little bit, which, you know, we're happy to help. But we love when average everyday Chicagoan decides to get passionate about a park issue and get something started and it really takes off. You know, I mean, that's powerful. Um, that is very in alignment with our mission. And we encourage more people to sign it and share it and keep it going to keep, you know, keep the attention on this issue. It was started by a guy named uh, Jay Buman uh, or Buman, uh, B-U-H-M-A-N-N. And uh, mm-hmm. congratulations to you, Jay, for, for, I mean, he just did it immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. The very first article in Black Club that came out said, and the petition has uh, uh, more than 100 signatures. Well, mm-hmm. I immediately went on to the petition and it had 800 by that time. And then it has just yeah. ramped up yeah. over the week. So this is 11,000 signatures in about a week week and two or three days okay uh uh, yeah and and that's going to get some people's attention uh one other thing that i'm was kind of curious about you you've already mentioned things that i hadn't thought of here's one that maybe you have or haven't thought of Uh, what i'm wondering is since those are amazon boxes they want to protect their property what kind of surveillance 
is being used around those boxes. Are there additional cameras on the box, off the box, around the box? What are they, what are they getting for people who uh, want to have their privacy protected? Uh, is this um, a violation of that? Have you guys thought about this? That's a good question. That's the first time that one has come up for me. Um, and yeah, something definitely to find out more about, you know, because they're on park district property, I, I would hope they're not just putting a whole bunch of new surveillance equipment on park district property. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I really don't know the answer to that. Uh, well, it, it occurred to me because those are very uh, fancy, expensive uh, lockers and they want to protect their property, I would be astounded if there weren't cameras in the boxes because uh, there's a screen there. And I, and I would yeah. bet, like ATMs, um, people are being monitored uh, when, when they come up to those boxes. So uh, that's yet another question. So uh, where do you, in like a minute, because we're going to take a quick break, uh, what's the next step here? Um, well, you know, we are kind of watching to see where the park district goes with this. They have said that they are slowing their installation of additional boxes in order to do more review in light of the, the pushback. So we say Chicago, keep pushing back um, because we really do think this, this is a serious uh, question that not only about the Amazon boxes, right? It's about what belongs in our parks. And we mm -hmm. hope that this um, leads to a more robust conversation and one that happens more transparently. The Board of Commissioners does meet monthly, although they do sometimes um, cancel their meeting like they did in August. Um, but they have opportunity for the public to testify um, during the people in the park section. So we encourage people to um, look out for that and get, you know, there is a ritual testimony as they continue to meet virtually right now. Um, um, and we will just keep watching this and decide, you know, I know some people say to friends of the parks, well, why don't you sue? Not everybody, not everything has a legal remedy. Yeah. Um, so we will be looking at, you know, kind of what are the next options. All right. As you can see, that's Juanita Irizarry. She is the executive director of Friends of the Parks. Uh, yeah, there are more issues going on. Like we said, it was a busy week, and we will continue our conversation with Juanita after this. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com. Dive in, 
time to win our hearts all in let's let the fun begin take a dive take a dive take a And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We are Peggy Malecki-less this morning. Um, she, uh, we assume she will be back with us next week. If you just tuned in, she uh, was under the weather. No, not COVID-related, nothing to do with that. Um, and she's getting some rest this morning. So uh, uh, we will see her very, very soon. Um, also want to thank our friends at Dive Heart. What a great organization where they take people with uh, disabilities um, and uh, teach them how to scuba dive. What a cool organization, and it inspires confidence um, and uh, gives them a new look, a new lease on life. So it's a great organization. Go to diveheart.org if you want more information. We're always happy to support them. Uh, we're talking to Juanita Irizarry, who is the executive director of Friends of the Parks. It's been a busy couple of weeks for the Park District of Chicago and the public parks in the city of Chicago. We just talked about the Amazon boxes, uh, the the delivery whatever they are, monoliths that uh, appeared in our parks. Something else that is very serious is um, this investigation going on to reported uh, allegations of uh, sexual abuse by district lifeguards, um, which was already going on. And then this past week, Nathan Kipp, uh, the park district's deputy inspector general, Uh, was placed on indefinite emergency suspension last week, and now he's saying that he thinks it was to possibly cover up the sex abuse probe uh, in the Park District. That's that's really, really serious stuff, Juanita. I'm I'm going to let you uh, give us a little background on that. Sure. Um Sure. Well, we had heard a number of months ago that part of the reason there was a shortage of lifeguards was um, um, because they were struggling with some internal things um, around lifeguard staffing that may relate to the scandal, but mostly it was being uh, dealt with fairly quietly and fairly, fairly privately. But what, you know, really has come to light is that rather than immediately turning over the information um, when the charges first came in, um, Mike Kelly, the CEO of uh, the Park District, did not hand over the complaint directly to the Inspector General's office of the Park District. Um, And he said he would do that, but that's not what he did. Um, He handed it over to a couple of top-level staff, one of whom it turns out is related to one of the people who ended up um, being investigated for being part of the um, inappropriate behavior. So um, 
And it has taken 18 months um, to work through all of this to investigate, which seems like an awfully long time, right? And we've just gone through um, a summer season that is about to be over with some of these same folks, um, many of these same folks um, who have been accused of sexually harassing folks, um, hazing, um, drug and alcohol use while on duty, um, those folks continuing to work as lifeguards. Can, can, um, I, can, so, I, can I stop you ju- just for a second there? Yeah. So I, I understand the concept of innocent until proven guilty, but some of these people couldn't be removed while the investigation continues. Why did that not happen? Um, you know, honestly, this stuff has been so under the radar and non-transparent that I don't know why it didn't happen. But 18 months seems like an extremely long time. Um, so the the question is, you know, besides the fact that maybe we weren't safe if people were doing drugs and alcohol while on duty, <laughs> and they're supposed to be making sure we don't drown in the lake, um, you know, the, the, the question is really about a pattern of behavior that seems to exist at the park district where they try to move people around internally that maybe get in trouble or do political favors by who they hire or where they place them and how they do or do not punish people. Um, And that is my concern because that is something that, I mean, that is my concern in addition to the fact that people were sexually harassed and abused, right? Um, But that there is a culture within the Chicago Park District of covering up of, of not, um, not, not making people face the consequences of behavior. There are often people who get where they get because of their political connections, um, which does not necessarily um, relate to their actual qualifications for the jobs that they're in. Um, and that, that is an ongoing state of affairs uh, from what we can tell at the Chicago Park District. So now you add on top of that, that there are you know, real consequences that have been suffered by people who have been sexually harassed um, and the public that has been swimming in, you know, with, with people that are supposed to be protecting them who maybe indeed were not even able to do that. And then on top of it, you have the deputy inspector general who says that he was let go because of this as part of a continuing, I guess you could use the word cover up. Um, but it certainly shows a lack of transparency. We just talked about the lack of transparency in the Amazon decision. Here's more uh, non-transparent action uh, in in this regard. Uh, Honestly, I expect to not have transparency when it comes to the city of Chicago. Um, uh, You see this all the time, but this seems rather egregious. Yeah, I I mean... I will say generally, I'm not surprised. Unfortunately, um, I will say don't I don't have the familiarity with the current Inspector General's office um, that I have with the previous IG who who left a number of months ago. Um, and what's also interesting about this particular situation is that the Deputy IG's comments lead one to wonder whether the IG herself may also not be moving forward in a way that is appropriate. So I, it sounds like it may be more than Mike Kelly, um, but also possibly the inspector general um, 
because this deputy IG is the one who has had to step up and say, wait a minute, the investigation is not thorough. They are not um, making sure that um, all those who could be witnesses in the case uh, where there's suggestion that there could be actual criminal charges um, are being handled the way they should be handled, right? So this is pretty deep. Um, Friends of the Parks has often been um, called by the Inspector General's office at the Park District when they are doing some internal investigations, but we have not since this particular uh, Inspector General has been on board. So I don't know her, don't have a sense of, of her work. Um, so this is a very interesting situation, to say the least. Yeah, and I've had, I had people uh, ask me when uh, they knew we were going to talk about this on the show, uh, they would say, well, what is Friends of the Parks got to do with any of this? But as we mentioned at the top of the show, you're a kind of watchdog agency. Yes, the IGs are the watchdogs for the park district, but who are the watchdogs for the watchdogs? Who will watch the right. watchers is, is where we are at, and, and how far does that go down? Right. I mean, and that's that is definitely part of the work we do. And then, you know, we also fortunately have a number of city councilmen who see the importance of city council figuring out how to engage concerns at the park district. The challenge in Chicago is that the park district is a completely separate authority. Right. So aldermen don't actually have direct authority over the park district. And as noted in the earlier conversation about Amazon, oftentimes the aldermen don't even know what's going on in the parks because the park district does not tell them. <laughs> they find out afterwards, right? And, um, you know, there was one alderman who was talked to to say, oh, I was not asked about putting an, an Amazon hub locker in my park. I was informed. So sometimes they do know, but they're not exactly asked, right? <laughs> they're just told this is how it's going to be. So, you know, part of the oversight of um, the park district, we think, needs to be some additional thinking about how, you know, where are the triggers that city council has the authority to ask what's going on there, right? But it's an informal authority uh, mechanism at the moment, and obviously the mayor does appoint um, the board chair of the board of commissioners and often is involved in the decisions about who is the head of the park district. In this case, Mike Kelly was already in place when uh, the mayor came in, um, but she chose to leave him there uh, to continue. And so th there does seem to be some accountability that needs to happen from the mayor's office at this time. Okay. Um, and on top of all of that, uh, there are some of the ongoing issues uh, in Chicago, one of which is at the mouth of the Calumet River uh, on the southeast side. And when we talk about uh, environmental justice, um, the southeast side always comes up. Um, and in this case, uh, there's a 45-acre site which is called a confined disposal facility, uh, or CDF, uh, basically, it's a place where toxic sludge uh, from the Calumet River and the Cal Seg Channel uh, is dredged up and plopped down. Um, the problem is, uh, th that was built in 1984. The problem is it was supposed to be released back to the city in, what, 1994, if I have that date right? Um, right. It was originally a 10-year life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and that hasn't happened. Uh, the Army Corps of uh, Engineers seems to have a mind of its own. Um, and I have asked this. Uh, you, you've talked about this on our show before. Uh, and, and I'm always asking. And, I, and, I, and actually, uh, Peggy and I came to uh, one of the talks, the, uh, the Netch talks, uh, where you did this. I think it was the 2019 um, but this it was is the last thing we did before COVID. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was, so it was 2020. It was like February of 2020 and then everything shut down. Yep. Oh my goodness. Um, and one of the questions I asked then is jurisdictions. If this is supposed to be park district land, uh, how does the park district play into it? How does the army Corps of engineers play into it? How does the state of Illinois play into it? How does the city of Chicago play into it? You would think that there could be some sort of agreement on this, but instead it seems to lurch forward without, without any controls on it. And the Army Corps says, uh, you know, extends the license and then they do it, except that you just discovered that their license had expired at the end of May and they were operating without that. So this is all, this, is, this sounds like a very complex uh, story here. Yes, this would be part of why I already had plenty to do before everything that happened this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the CDF, the Confined Disposal Facility, as you say, which we call the CDF because it's hard to say, Confined Disposal Facility, yes. is essentially a landfill, except that there's a law that you can't have any more landfills in Chicago, so it's not technically a landfill. See how they do that? Um, and it was supposed to be closed and capped, by 2022. Um, so we are very close to that deadline. Um, and it's well, well they say cool. it's uh, supposed to run out of space by 2022. Correct. And- there literally is not more room to keep dumping there. Um, and so the Army Corps had looked at a process uh, to maybe find another location, but the only places they li- looked seriously were also in the 10th Ward in an environmental justice community. So rather than having done a robust job of actually looking at other options, they decided that, well, this environmental justice community is the least cost alternative. And so they're just going to keep dumping there because it's the cheapest, easiest thing to do, which is what we do to black and brown communities, right? Um, And so they came up with a plan to build 25 feet higher in the location that they're already at, right on the lakeshore at the mouth of the Calumet River. Um, And it's just a ridiculous thing, you know, with the increased frequency and severity of storms that we're having because of climate change, even if lake levels are going back down, they'll slowly um, and they'll eventually go back up because guess what? That's what happens, Lake Michigan cycles. Um, But with climate change, we're seeing more and more ferocious storms and we've had terrible lakeshore erosion and they think putting 25 feet higher mounds of toxic dredge there is a good idea and we think that's ridiculous now i see that you want to ask a question no well i'm just i just i'm saying that makes perfect sense to me let's just build it higher Um, and as you say uh we talk about the lake levels on our show all the time with our meteorologist rick DeMaio, and and uh when you're looking at climate change it's the variability that that story that got uh uh, published in uh, the New York Times a few weeks ago by Dan Egan about uh, Chicago's uneasy relationship with water levels uh, mm-hmm. shows us that the it can fluctuate very quickly. Uh, we went from 
the lowest levels ever in 2013 to the highest levels ever in 2020 in seven years. Um, As you mentioned, they're starting to go back down. But the idea that you're going to pile even more sludge uh, at the mouth of the Calumet River right on Lake Michigan. It makes me wonder why states like Indiana and Michigan are not suing the city of Chicago for for uh, endangering Lake Michigan. Um, uh, maybe Wisconsin could get in in a suit like that too. I mean, it just, it seems yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. And what we know is that the CDF has... The Army Corps of Engineers has failed to monitor and has regularly asked for permission to do less monitoring of the toxins that they are dealing with, right? And what we have found out, we forced them um, to release data that they weren't planning to share with the public during the public review process, um, which indicates that they already know that they have arsenic and PCBs and lead and like five different toxins that are interacting with our drinking supply, right? Um, and they decide on their own that that's not a big deal and that in fact, they shouldn't even have to monitor um, those toxins moving forward. Um, and unfortunately, others have allowed them to get away with that. Um, so now that they are running out of space and having to pursue new permits with the Illinois EPA in order to do what they propose to do, we are pushing really hard with the Illinois EPA to say, like, what in what world is this a good idea to let them build this, first of all? And certainly in what world is this a good idea to allow them to not monitor whether the toxins are actually um, staying out of the water when you are building something right there on the edge of the water that we already know is the liner is cracked and it's already leaching. We already know that there are fish inside the current container that means the water from the outside and inside are interconnecting and it's going back and forth. So why are you even going through all this process to get these toxins out of the water when you're basically just putting them back in the water? Like there's so little sense in the whole thing. And where um, and where so does we, where yeah. does the, the, the permit come in to that? Did you guys FOIA that to find that information? We we had to FOIA to find a bunch of the data that they did not put out during a public process that they had actually now more than a year ago, two years ago now, um, to you know invite the public to to give opinions about where where to put this thing. Um, and so you know we were able to re- get force them through FOIA to put more information out there. More recently with Illinois EPA, <clears throat> the EPA didn't bother to let us know that um, they had put in a new application, even though the application came in way past what would be normal. (coughs) And it has seemed to us that the Illinois EPA has been conspiring with them to keep this under the radar. So we just have this, you know, a pandemic of lack of transparency in the state of Illinois, the city of Chicago, the park district. It's just a thing. I guess we shouldn't be surprised because that's kind of how things operate around here. There there we Um, go with the transparency issue again. It's uh... Yeah. And so we had to say to the EPA, what are you doing? Why aren't you talking to the public about this? And they said to us, well, we put the information out and guess what? They had not. (laughs) They just simply had not. Um, And so now, you know, the information has been put out that they are reviewing a draft permit, but they're doing it in a very convoluted way. And they are entertaining a conversation that about 
permits that are not the federal level permits that they should be applying for, right? And so it's very complicated and the names of them don't make any sense to an everyday person. But the point is that now we've had to push the governor's office and the Illinois EPA to make sure that they do a true transparent process to make sure that we all get to speak into the permit application. As you mentioned at the end of May, um, the permit expired for the current work that the Army Corps was doing. Um, and we found out in June only because we pushed and asked, not because the Illinois EPA was transparent about what was going on, that there had been at least an application submitted, though it usually takes about six months to process and it had only been submitted in April for operations that would then have to cease at the end of May. Um, the Army Corps did say to us that they were not operating the parts of their work that require the permit. That's what they say. Um, but, you know, we are, um, you know, very concerned. Um, thankfully, we have heard from <clears throat> Alderwoman Sue Garza that she thinks it would be important to make them actually do water testing, um, which would be good. Thank you, Alderwoman Garza. Um, and of course, all of this sits within a larger conversation about environmental justice in the 10th Ward um, and a community that's you know pretty tired and beat up over the number of fights that they have to manage, right? So Friends of the Parks has been working really hard to make sure that space is created um, for local community folks to help figure out what the solutions are, because there are people that are afraid that they'll shut that one down and just build a new one somewhere else in the 10th Ward. And the 10th Ward has spoken and says, we don't just want it dumped somewhere else in our community. So the question is, how do we force them to do a real process of reviewing options that does not just dump a new CDF in an environmental justice community, but rather in a place that makes sense that is not polluting all of our water supply. And that is where, for all the people that always want to see who Friends of the Parks is going to sue next, where litigation may have to come in. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Army Corps' uh, uh, argument is that where else are we going to put this? Well, my argument is not there. Um, and That's find, right. We have to start with actually doing a study of other places, right? And they just didn't do that. They just said, ah, you know, we're just going to do it here because they're going to let us get away with it and it's the least cost alternative. And the park district isn't going to charge us for the use of their land, which is what is happening now, which is part of what makes it cheaper. You know, the whole thing is ridiculous. The number of city and park district and, you know, all the government entities that are conspiring to keep dumping toxins in an environmental justice community into our water supply. Um, and a, a real quick question before we, we wrap up with our final uh, topic, and that is Richie Daly bulldozed Northerly Island. Couldn't a uh, Chicago mayor just say, guess what? We're going to make that a park. End of story. Yes. We're done here. Yeah. Uh, it yes. seems to me yes. that a, a really a strong mayor could do that. Well, this this mayor actually allowed for CDOT to sign on as a cost share partner, and the city is putting in more than $10 million to help them continue to dump this pollution rather than creating that park, right? So um, this mayor is doing exactly the opposite of what you have just suggested. She is fully cooperating with the continued operation of this toxic dump on an environmental justice. Yikes. Okay, uh, before we wrap up here, one more thing, a Supreme Court decision um, on Friday to halt construction uh, the, the, 
it denied a motion to halt construction of uh, Barack Obama's presidential center in Chicago. Uh, that was filed by uh, Protect Our Parks. I know this has been uh, very controversial. This has been controversial with you. We've talked about it on the show. Um, and uh, where does that leave Friends of the Parks? That is, is this the, it? Ball game over? Um, well, first I will say Protect Our Parks and Friends of the Parks are two different organizations because people yes. confuse us all the time. I'm sorry. Um, Let's make that clear. No, yes. no, 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 that's fine. I'll make it clear. Um, I mean, we have shared concerns about the location of the Obama Center, but we have just not agreed on strategy um, or legal analysis with Protect Our Parks. And so it is a very nuanced conversation. And we know we live in a reality where people just want a black or white answer, right? And it's not black or white. Friends of the Parks has always thought that the Obama Center was great to have in Chicago and great to have in the South Side. We just wish it would have been on vacant land across the street from Washington Park, where there's 11 acres that would not have displaced anything and would be across the street from a park and could still add to the value of the park in terms of improving the park itself and adding new green space across the street, right? But that's not what the Obamas chose. They chose Jackson Park. Um, and um, pr Protect Our Parks has moved forward with a number of arguments that we just didn't think would hold water legally. Um, and that's kind of how it's turning out, right? Um, so we understand that their process still includes a couple of state level discussions, legal levers that they're trying to pull that will still continue. So the Supreme Court decision is not the end of it, but certainly it will not stop construction moving forward. We don't expect that they will be successful with the remaining litigation that they do have at the state level. Um, so the Park District and the, and the Obama Center and the city of Chicago are happily celebrating kind of what feels like a cleared path for them to move forward, and they are beginning. There was a meeting this week um, where the city provides some updates to a number of stakeholders. Friends of the Parks is one of the groups invited. It's an invitation-only meeting, though the city may very well call it a public meeting. Um, but we got some updates that we at least are thankful for in that, you know, our approach has been to say, well, if we can't get them to put this in a place that we think would be the win-win-win for everybody, um, then let's really push for increased parkland and improved amenities um, in Jackson Park, in the neighborhood around Jackson Park, on the Midway, and in Washington Park. And we did hear at this meeting this week that one of the amenities that we've been pushing really hard about is a baseball field that will be replaced. The track and field that they're already working on because the Obama Center is displacing the existing track and field, well, the old track and field, the new track and field is going where there was a baseball field. And we've been fighting with them about just demolishing a baseball field and not replacing it. And we heard on Wednesday that they are going to begin and have money for um, refurbishing baseball fields that are north of Hayes in another area of the park, and they're going to add another field there. So we're very happy about that. Um, you know, it's just a little thing, but for us, the fight to replace the amenities that they're displacing has been an important thing. We also heard that they're going to launch a framework planning process for Washington Park and actually hopefully set off a process of improving Washington Park. Um, Department of Planning Development Commissioner Maurice Cox was also there and also talked about 
you know, how he will be thinking as part of the framework planning process for Washington Park about the disposition of vacant land around Washington Park and in those communities. And there may be some opportunities there for other pocket parks and other things. So that's where we're focused. You know, we kind of decided there's only so much you can fight something that's going to happen anyway. So how do we figure out how to make the best of the situation and mm-hmm. make sure that the new parkland is the best it can be. And we keep fighting for more parkland to replace that that's gone away. Well, we're out of time here. Um, um, I can't, you're, you're such a stand-up person and just handle all of this magnificently. It's a, uh, a long hour and um, I appreciate the time that you've given us. Mm-hmm. A really quick question though. How long have you now been executive director? It'll be six years the day after Labor Day. Did you see this measure of intensity coming when you took the job? <laughs> I thought maybe it would die down a little bit after the Lucas <laughs> thing. But <laughs> uh, uh, there's just one battle after another. We call it 200 back-to-back 100-year storms with Lucas and the Obama Center. I'm, I'm hoping there's not another 100-year storm, but I think the CDF is at least a 75-year storm. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you for your work. Thank you uh, and all the folks at Friends of the Parks for your advocacy. Um, go tell your staff, uh, pat them on the head and say, uh, good job. It's, it's a hard job and pretty thankless, um, especially, you know, you took a lot of heat for the Lucas thing. Not for me. Not for me. I was like, get your Star Wars stuff off of our lakefront. Um, I mean, there were plenty of places they could have done it. Also, like the Obama yeah. Center, they could have chosen other areas but uh all right uh juanita irizari executive director friends of the parks thank you thank you so much and uh, i hope uh, i see you soon all right thanks everybody okay uh it's the mike novak show without peggy malecki today when we come back we're talking tropical plants so please stick around Environmental stewardship, it's got a ring to it. I mean, it sounds important, and it is. You know, for over 100 years, Bartlett Tree Experts has been committed to maintaining a healthy environment and still providing you with the landscape that you had always hoped for. But creating a sustainable landscape with a natural-based approach, it takes time and oversight. And it starts at the beginning, choosing the right plant and knowing how to care for it. You ever hear the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Well, that applies to your landscape as well. We can help you choose trees or shrubs that are naturally more resistant to certain pests and diseases. So, plain and simple, fewer pests, fewer diseases, less treatments needed. But environmental stewardship doesn't stop here. Once your landscape's in place, we need to keep it healthy and thriving. So what can you do? Applying a layer of organic mulch around your trees will help to improve the root environment. Providing irrigation based on the species of the tree and the amount of rainfall that you've had can help alleviate stress from dry weather and high temperatures. What can we do? Soil care. Soil care is the most important preventative measure in maintaining tree health, which is why we offer Boost Natural Fertilizer a fertilizer totally derived from organic sources that is listed by the Organic Materials Review Institute, or OMRI for short. Another organic soil amendment we provide is premium landscape biochar. 
This unique carbon-rich charcoal can improve your soil's ability to retain nutrients and water, stimulating growth and making your plants less susceptible to insects and disease. But even with the best laid plans, problems can still arise. And especially when using a natural approach to tree care, issues must be identified early in order for the treatments to really work. That's why regular visits with a skilled arborist are so important. Whether we're applying organic or reduced risk products, or releasing beneficial insect predators like the lady beetle, timing is key. So as you can see, Bartlett Tree Experts has always been in the forefront of providing sustainable techniques. So if you're committed to environmental stewardship, let us provide you with organic and environmentally responsible methods that really work. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sips-on of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawns to rake. Give me all that I can take. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, except it's without Peggy Malecki this morning. Um, Peggy, if you're watching and listening, I hope you feel better, and we'll see you next week. Uh, no biggie. I'm going to say it one more time. Uh, nothing to do with COVID, nothing like that. Uh, and uh, as you can see on our right, uh, Marianne, I'm, I'm going to say that after that conversation, and I don't know how much you heard uh, of it in the first hour, it was pretty intense. I feel like, oh, I can relax. Oh, I can just, let's talk plants here, okay? Let's, let's, let's have fun. Let's have fun. <laughs> let's talk tropical plants and how to love them. And as uh, as I showed you, during, I still have my bookmark, which everybody will <laughs> yes. recognize, which is, uh, yeah, that thing, uh, because uh, it's still out there, folks. It's still out there. Uh, but uh, I will I will take that out so that we don't uh, now. I'll I, send you another one. I'll uh, send you another one, Mike. Another mask? No, an- another bookmark. <laughs> a, better, a better bookmark. Oh. <laughs> I, I can figure out a bookmark, Mark, I think. So uh, uh, Marianne Wilburn is our guest, and she is the author of that uh, book. She was on our show, uh, as you might recall, uh, earlier this spring uh, with Susan Harris, and because they're both garden ranters, they're at gardenrant.com uh, if you want to find that. So uh, uh, feel free to, to log on there and... Um, and uh, and and have fun because it's a, it's it's a fun site. It's serious, but also you guys goof around a lot, which uh, I appreciate. And uh, thank you for being with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm I'm really glad to see you again. It's good to talk tropicals. Uh, yeah, <laughs> why not? I mean, uh, it's it's summer uh, right outside my house here. If I walk out the back door, it's muggy. Not as muggy as it was yesterday. But it's going to get nasty again uh, this week. It's going to be 90s and high humidity and high dew points. Um, and um, that's the kind of stuff that tropicals like, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, they they respond to that with vigor, excitement, all that. Basically, the opposite of the way that we respond to it as gardeners. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they take it and they run with it. Uh, I like this, uh, uh, and I, if I can, I, I won't be able to find it. But one of the things you have this uh, rules of thumb for um, tropicals, and it's about uh, warmth and humidity. Good. Warmth and dry. Oh, I, oh, yeah, warmth and humidity. Yes. Warmth and humidity is best. Yes, warmth, my my little equations. Right, your yes, little equations. I have, to, I have to thumb back into into this to to look at them again. But yeah, I I realize that a lot of gardeners don't don't really. I mean, let let's say gardeners, but just people getting into plants, house plant people, uh, don't recognize that a plant. There are lots of different ways to work with plants, with with humidity, with uh, temperature, with light, and it's all about balancing those things so that you don't have too much of one, which will create an absence of another. So if you get that. I found it. I found it. You found uh, it. Where where should we go? Quickly, quickly. Let me look through the book here. 70, page 70, (laughs) page 70. Uh, What? You don't remember? You don't remember the exact page? (laughs) Do you know how long it takes to write a book? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I do. There we go. The perfect equation. Yeah. And by the way, uh, this is a lovely hardcover book uh, by Quarto. Uh, is a is a publishing Quarto Publishing Group, and it just came out. When what when did it exactly did it come out? Came out May fourth, um, okay. and it was delayed by a couple months because of COVID. No, uh, but it it yes yes <laughs> that yes. thing. But uh, yes, it came out in May. That we're so, thing, we're you so know. over that now. Yikes! Uh, That's so great. so what you say here? You you talk about the perfect equation, uh, and this is really. Uh, you couldn't say it any better for anybody growing an indoor plant. It just just nails it. It's warm plus moist equals great. Cool plus dry equals good. Warm plus dry equals bad. <laughs> cool plus moist <laughs> equals terrible. So ah, yes, and that's uh, a. Th- it's a way of. Of because uh, so many people they lose plants and they, oh why did why did I lose them well was it cold and wet I mean do you want to be out in in a a cold like I say in the book in a cold rainstorm in the middle of winter mm-hmm. or would you like to be out in a warm rainstorm in the middle of summer you know it's yeah cold conditions when are just fine as long as the plant is not wet and moist I have. Um... The perfect story to tell about this uh, a tropical, and I have lots of plants in here, um, not as many as you, I'm sure, uh, but then I also don't have them in my garage storage and wrapped in bundles and pots and stuff like you do. I, um, I'm i just going to say, you you talk about how easy, and, 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 and reading your book, and I did read it all the way through. I had not finished it the last time we talked, but I have read it all the way through, <laughs> and um, um, it Actually, the way you describe it, yeah, it's not that difficult to do what you do. Am I going to do it? Probably not. But uh, because I usually bring my tropicals back in uh, and I want to enjoy them all winter long. And you, you, you talk about that. And I wrote on my blog the, uh, the five different kinds of relationships that uh, 
one has with plants, the summer romance, the long-term commitment, the best friend, the high-maintenance partner, and friends with benefits. Ooh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> those are the edible. Tropicals. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, see, you, you can't. So are you, gotta, you blushing, Mike? Are you, you, you blushing? No, not me. I would never. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you should leave people hanging. You should tease them with that uh, a little oh, bit. Oh. Uh, I, um, I'm not as savvy as you are. Uh, yes, no. they are. It is about all these different relationships with plants. And, and like you said, are you going to do that? Maybe not. But somebody else might or they might want to do a little of it. And my point in this book was to give them the tools that they need, uh, the knowledge that they need to be able to do what they want that works for their life and the plant that they choose. And I'm looking at the chat and you, you are going to eat this up, Marianne. Uh, <laughs> okay. Michael writes... Any suggestions about wintering over a banana tree growing in a pot outside? Oh, have you walked right into a trap, Michael? This is oh what, yes. I mean, uh, Marianne knows more about this probably than anybody on the planet, and we will get to that in a second. I was okay. Uh, I was going to tell my story though about uh, a Dracaena fragrance that um, uh, it, corn plant for those of you who are uninitiated and, and, and Marianne goes into why we need to use, <laughs> why we need to use Latin names because it's really important to keep the plant straight. Yes, we, we get that. So I have this corn plant um, and uh, Kathleen and I had lived before we bought this house, we lived in a third floor apartment, Southern exposure. Okay. And uh, even in the city of Chicago, I mean, sun blasting in, I could grow anything. It was like, snap my fingers, man. It's just so easy. We move into the Black Holes, Calcutta here. Um, <laughs> and um, I have this corn plant that's like seven feet tall. Beautiful, beautiful plant. And it starts to decline. And I'm going, oh, what did I, uh, you know? maybe I'm, I'm underwatering it. Uh, and you know where this is going and, uh, it just declined and declined and then just collapsed. And what I realized, I realized a number of things. This house didn't have the sun. This house was a lot cooler because we didn't have good insulation. And, you know, we bought this barn and all, and then, and then to try to give the plant more room, because it was so tall, I put it in the stairwell, the drafty stairwell, um, and it was. Uh, and then I watered it too much, and of course, I completely killed it myself because it just it wanted me to leave it alone. It's get me, let me get used to this. Don't overwater me. Let me figure out what the light level is here because Dracaenas are are pretty tough plants. You can you can you can beat them up pretty good, and they'll survive. And I did not leave it alone, and I killed it. Um, so, so in the end, did you actually do the killing, or in the end, was it just looking so terrible that you just executed it and put it outside? I, I what I, happened? I, 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 it was looking so terrible. Yeah, I put it outside and I said, "We're done." Yeah. Um, I'm sorry about yeah. that. And you also talk about that in your book about how <laughs> to let go. You got to let go, let go. How to let go. Yeah. Well, that that's the the um the thing about the book is that I am absolutely telling everybody all the different ways that you can hold on, and all the diff you know the the tools you need to do that. 
but there's a really large chapter with the summer romances about how we let go and and when it's good to let go and what plants we should let go of and just enjoy for a season because if you think about the growing season for you guys in chicago you start what somewhere in mid-may is that about yeah, right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, for right. that that warmer season, um, and you're probably cooking along until beginning of October, maybe middle yep. of October. Am yep. I guessing close? Yeah. So that is a long. Uh, that's a fair amount of months. What is that? That's June, July, August, September. That's probably about five months total, and you think about buying a bouquet of flowers costs maybe $15 and you have it for two weeks and it's beautiful and you love it. Well, you spend $15 on a gorgeous mandevilla. Uh, you have it for five months. That's a heck of an investment. Do you need to keep it through the winter? Now, it may be a rare mandevilla that you wouldn't have paid 15 for. You would have paid more for, but it may be something that it's worthwhile to hold on to for that, for that month. But, the, but, it's real possible that maybe you should just let it go and have it again in the spring and in and the, and the, the growing season. You, you mean buy another or one? Or maybe in something the... else. Buy another one. Yes. Yeah. Buy, you know, th money everywhere. No, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a very frugal gardener. So I, I am very aware of that bottom line. Um, so you want to do it when something is rare, you know, when it's, you know, really important that you got hold of it or maybe a sentimental value. And I know we've talked about that in the past, you know, the sentimentality of some sure. plants that you had a connection you have with a plant that sometimes is great, but sometimes is a bit of a burden. And we should assess this. And just like we look at our closets and say, okay, look, I got to Marie Kondo the heck out of this thing and, and clean it up and, and, uh, and make, my, make my mind and my life and my closet look better. Same thing with your windowsills. So I give a lot of absolution in the book for how to do that, how to think about plants, and to realize that we have, through just our, the plants that are sold to us and the way they're sold and marketed to us, some plants we uh, naturally think of as annuals, but in their subtropical climate, they are perennials but we throw them away. We do that with peppers. You don't think about, oh, I should really keep my pepper what, what, When, when you say, pe you, you've, you've said this and you wrote about it in the book, when you say peppers, what, what do you, exactly are you talking yeah, pepper, about? Pepper peppers, you know, uh, uh, capsicum pe peppers. Okay. Uh, you can keep those going for quite a long time. Uh, you can keep coleus going forever and ever and ever. But uh, most gardeners at the end of the season, the frost hits it and they're done. You've trained yourself that that's okay. So can you train yourself to do the same thing for a colocasia, uh, for an elephant ear, or for a corn plant, or for something like that? You know, corn plant's tough because that, that was supposed to survive. That was not uh, what I intended. And, but I learned a hard lesson, which was this house was very different from the place I was living before. And now I had mm. to adjust to that. And we did. Uh, for one thing, there's insulation here now. There's A skylight got put in. Uh, things have changed uh, dramatically. Okay, I want to show some photos. But before I do that, I want to uh, uh, help my listeners out. Oh, there's another uh, question that came in about pineapple plants. Let's start with Michael's about banana tree. If you can give us a quick uh, overview of how to uh, overwinter a banana tree and pineapple plants. And then we'll get to some photos. 
Yes, absolutely. So banana, it really depends on which banana you have. If you have a hardy banana, uh, which is Musa Basju, uh, that can be hardy in your climate up to about six. Yeah, they're massive um, and they can stay in the ground with a lot of mulch. But you wouldn't want to plant that right now because it's not going to get enough time in the ground putting its roots down before the winter. So let's just say it's any type of banana. You what I do is I dig it up. I don't hold any root ball with it. I just keep the roots and I wrap those in an old towel or piece of fabric cloth. I've even used old uh, clothing that is, is rag clothing. And then I put that into a plastic bag and I put that into the garage and the garage or the basement, any place that stays above freezing and it just stays above freezing in a dormant situation throughout the uh, the winter. And I have also cut back all of the leaves up to the growing point. So a banana has that growing point where it's just coming up, the new leaf that's coming up. So I've cut all of the leaves off around that. Uh, so you just have just sort of a long pole. And the other thing that you want to make sure with a banana is that you store it vertically. You do not store it. it, it very tempting to just lay it down and stack them, especially if you have a lot of them. But they will start to twist and they'll start to, to move towards any light they can see. And there's also gravitational forces on them. So, and they will deform themselves. So you want to store them vertically. So that's the best way to, to do a banana. You'll notice if you do it year after year that the banana gets bigger. And that's why I talk about bananas being a best friend because they're extremely easy to store uh, without having to do stuff during the winter. But during, but as they get bigger, they become a high maintenance partner because they can be heavy, heavy, heavy. I've got some Ansetti red Abyssinian bananas that are about five years old. Uh, they easily weigh a hundred pounds a piece, easily. So I've got um, a dolly that I use for those, and I put them in the back of my truck. and And this may be the year, Mike, actually, that I say, okay, I'm starting with some new ones. They, mm. I'm, I'm done with these and, and they're majestic right now. They are gorgeous right now, but I have my limits. My garage has its limits. A lot of people don't have a garage. They may be schlepping these down basement stairs. Yep. Uh, so you have to, you have to figure out what works for you. Um, and, but bananas are, are fantastic plants to store. Very easy. Okay. What about uh, pineapple plants very quickly? Pineapples can be very uh, prickly and take up a lot of space. Um, it depends on where it is in its development. Uh, if you've got a plant that's probably about a year old and it's starting to fruit, uh, you may want to bring that in and put it in under lights uh, or keep it in a stasis situation, which means somewhere in the 50 degree range, maybe 50 to 55, 60 with lights on it. And that allows it to stay cool but not actively growing. If you want it actively growing, you've got to provide a lot more humidity to go along with that warmer air and all of that light. So you, the aim is to keep it in stasis if you're trying to get it through the season. If you want to actually keep it growing, give it that heat, give it that light, uh, give it that humidity. And that's, that's what those equations were about that, um, that uh, we were talking about at the beginning. And uh, one, a next question is, how about growing tropical from seed? My friends did that, and now they have several grapefruit, orange, lemon type of trees. Would you recommend trying to grow from seed as a fun project? And absolutely, yes, you devote time in the book to that. 
Absolutely, I do. Um, I have a whole list of fantastic tropicals that you can grow very easily from seed that make very high impact in your garden, and they're cheap. Uh, this is a wonderful way to have a summer romance because you don't have that frugality thing at the end going, oh, I spent some money on that. I really should keep it. Things like castor bean, uh, things like mirabilis, uh, four o'clocks, uh, things like that. I mean, castor bean is huge. Papaya. I have got a nine-foot papaya in my garden right now. I'm only growing it for the foliage because it's superb. I'm not interested in the fruit. It's from seed. Uh, and it's it's very, very simple. You just got to give it the same sort of things you do for your regular seeds, plus a little bit more heat a lot of times. Okay. Let's waltz through some photos here. And the first one is not your yard, but mine. Remember I was talking about this the other day? There it is. There it is. Now, yes. I, I called, I said, uh, oh, I've got a variegated ginger. <laughs> and, <clears throat> excuse me. And Marianne said, well, what kind? And I said, I don't know, it's a variegated ginger. <laughs> and this is, Marianne? Alpinia. Alpinia. Yes, Alpinia. Yes, uh, this is a fabulous, fabulous uh, uh, ginger that's in that family. The ginger family is very, very large. This is a very well-known one. It sort of spreads out. And it just gives so much foliage impact. You can see that, that bright yellow, that green, they contrast so well. They pick up, they're picking the yellows up of the, of the uh, black-eyed Susans there at their feet. Yeah, and, um, and the green of and, the hosta as well. So, uh, and the green of the hosta. So high-value plant, very, very strong. And um, I, it's, it's, yeah, great plant. Um, and, uh, uh, that's in a pot and I just bring it in and it doesn't seem to suffer during the winter. So I'm knocking on wood so far. Uh, so good. And speaking of bananas, this is yours, uh, in your garage, right? My shame. That's my, that's my, uh, my shamefully, uh, messy garage, but those are the racks that I use. I use two old audiovisual visual carts, you know, back in the days when the teachers would wheel them in to the classroom. Yep. Well, they work really, really well, and they're extremely cheap, if not free, at auctions to, to be able to, to stack tropicals on. So as you can see, I've got bags of tropicals there, and I've also got pots of tropicals, and I've got a banana uh, <laughs> for the listener, listener who was looking at that. That is a red banana. And you can see how it's just got that bag on it. And I put it into a large pot only so I can drag it if I need to. And mm. usually I don't need to. I put it somewhere really where I, where I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, listeners may look at this or watchers may look at this and go, oh, my gosh, I don't need that in my in my garage. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. I hear you. My husband hears you. My mother hears you. This is my reality because I enjoy these plants and I'm working with them. I'm writing a book about them. But yours may be just a pot of canna that you just bring in and let it sit in a corner. Yeah, just and, the one pot. And, and this, then those kind yes. This is the spring then as you're bringing them out uh, before uh, they're on their own. 
That's right. This is after I have uh, taken them out of bags. I've put them into pots. This is probably around, uh, I would say, the end of April. And they've put on a great amount of growth because before this, um, before that netting was on there, there was plastic, six mil plastic, which built that heat up. And that's how I like to get a little bit of a jump on the season. Um, you're in Chicago, you're going to want to get a jump on the season too. And so I can create these little temporary cold frames that will get those plants really going because otherwise they'll sit in my colder soil and just sit there until the heat pops up and then they'll start to grow. I don't want to wait that long. So I get an extra bit on the season. This uh, this has netting over it just because I had a deer issue before I um, before I fenced in, and there were a few things in there, the dahlias that they love to eat. Mm. The deer don't tend to touch the colocasia, the canna. Um, they're not really interested in those. I don't know why. Uh, but, it well, could be because colocasia, yeah, there's a, there could be. Well, anyway, I was going to say, uh, you talk about canna. A lot of people, that's not particularly exotic, and there's caladium and other things that uh, folks buy all the time. Um, here's a... Uh, uh, explain uh, what castor we've got bean. here. Yeah, castor bean. Which... Yeah, this is castor bean, ricinus. And uh, this is one of those seed-reared plants. This is from seed uh, that was planted probably in March or April. Uh, with my timing, probably April this year I put some in. Uh, it is very poisonous plant, so that's important to, re to remember if you're concerned about poisonous plants. Uh, but there are a lot of poisonous plants in the garden that we don't worry about. Oh, yeah. So this this one is very red, a big palmate leaf, beautiful leaf, very striking. Here it is against Arundo Donax, that is the sort of bamboo-like, grass-like in the back. And it's coming over a juniper and a viburnum. And basically, this is giving the garden a little bit of accent while some of the temperate plants are getting bigger. Because I use tropicals to make it look like I have a garden while the real garden is growing, while the temperate garden is growing up. And um, I, I sort of use them strategically that way. Mm -hmm. And this is dahlia. This is, you know, everybody knows dahlia. Well, that's a subtropical plant. Uh, this is Mystic Illusion, one of my favorites. I love the singles. I, I have a few doubles that I grow, but they are often... Uh, high maintenance to me. Uh, the singles, I don't have to stake. They, I love the bronze foliage singles particularly. And in the back, that's Xanthosoma uh, uh, lime zinger is the, uh, is the cultivar. A beautiful elephant ear. Uh, very, very vigorous. It just brings a burst of light to, to the space. And behind that is a smaller banana. That's a younger Ansetti, mm. uh, probably about maybe two years old, maybe two years old. They grow very, very quickly. Wait, did so, you say you have a Yeti? You have a Yeti in your garden? No, oh, wait. <laughs> Enseti, Enseti yes. oh, okay. ventricosum. All right, one is, more is the botanical name. We have one more. Oh, and there it is, bigger. Yes, yeah. and there, there it is, much bigger, a little bit older, maybe another year or two older. And look, I mean, just look at that magnificent uh, vertical accent in a garden, and it's surprising too. It's unusual. So I like to 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 explain to people who haven't been to my garden that I don't have a tropical garden. I have a temperate garden with tropical accents. It's very Thanks. different. Ah, you know, 
it's uh, amazing how fast uh, a half hour goes uh, when oh when you're having fun. Oh, I'm, I'm here. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, hold on a second. I've got another mic open, which I need to get off right at this. Hold on one second and boom. Okay, there we go. Um, well, I'm going to urge people to uh, get this book because every if you have any questions at all, they're going to be answered here, uh, or at least she will get you on the right path. And then you bombard her with emails and say, you didn't quite clarify that thing, and I need to know, but uh, um, good job. Uh, and by the way, I should also mention that um, you can go to Small Town Gardener. That is Marianne's website. I've got the link uh, on my blog, uh, but you can go to Small Town Gardener on Facebook and uh, other social media you, you can and, find and on instagram yes oh, i have instagram. a lot of photos you know in the here and now on instagram at small town gardener so you can sort of see what's going on in my garden i, I can't you know throughout the season i don't post a lot of summer pictures in winter i post winter pictures <laughs> and the great thing about this book is that it's not just about how to put them in your yard though that's an important thing um, it's how to keep them alive during the winter. So uh, thank you so much, Marianne. Great talking to you. I'm sure we will be doing it again soon when you write something funny for Garden Rant and I have to comment on it. Uh, well, I might have to drag <laughs> you back on the show. Okay. I look forward to it, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's the Mike Novak Show. Without Peggy Malecki today, Rick DeMaio is standing by. He's up next. Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collective Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, uh, except that there's no Peggy today. I don't know if you heard, uh, Rick, she's under the weather. Uh, and as I keep mentioning, so people know it's not COVID-related at all. Uh, she had a little bit of a rough night, so she said, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to join you guys. So, uh, um, Matter of fact, I had a rough night too, Mike. See ya. <laughs> Okay, that's all we got today. Are you kidding? After I loaded all those charts and we got a hurricane bearing down on New York and the uh, New England? Come on, man. It. Uh, I saw your your email this morning, and and what happened is when it when it came in, I grabbed some of the uh, the stuff you sent this morning. But you you said that in terms of New York City, you were calling this a non-event. Yeah, so um, Hurricane Henri has been downgraded to a tropical storm. Okay. Um, it only was a hurricane for about six hours, and the fact that it began to get absorbed in the upper trough and kind of pushed a little bit further to the east, um, this was going to be a non-event for New York City from a standpoint 
of wind and storm surge. However, rainfall is a different story. Overnight, they had nearly six inches of rain in parts of Brooklyn and Queens. That was the leading wow. edge of what we call the feeder bands. Yeah, it was a lot of rain. Um, and some of the heaviest rain uh, they've ever seen in the city of New York. That goes all the way back to the 1850s. So the satellite view that you're showing here is actually the current view because uh, I'm looking at the last observation time on the bottom there. And yeah. It actually shows um, 1230Z. So that's actually about four hours old, but it's not that not, not, not that it's that's if that's as good as because I've been on the air now for uh, for an hour and a half so it's it's pretty uh, recent. Yeah. yeah, and what and what you can see are two different things. Um, you can see like the northwest quadrant of the storm got kind of pulled off across the intersection of New Jersey and Long Island, and that happened at between about eight o'clock and about midnight last night. And when that occurred, um, they got literally an inch and a half to two inches of rain in about an hour, which set an all-time uh, record for New York City. They've never seen that much rain in an hour period of time. Now, you see the clouds down to the south off the coast of the Carolinas. Yeah. That's the edge of the upper trough that's actually pushing the tropical storm due north. Ah. What's also interesting is there's a big area of high pressure over northern New England and southeast Canada that's actually nudging the tropical storm off to the west. This is almost the same large-scale scenario that we saw at Hurricane Sandy back in 2012. The big difference, though, is Henri is probably about one-fifth the size of Sandy. So therefore, you don't have the large-scale wind field, nor do you have the persistent battering of storm surge on the coast of Long Island and New Jersey that you had with Sandy. So one thing to note is both storms ended up being a category one as they moved into the area off the coast of New York and New Jersey. However, the problem with how we rate hurricanes is not so much by the intensity uh, or not by the size and the amount of energy they have, but the intensity of the eye. So both, both hurricanes ended up being a category one as they moved northward. But again, because Hurricane Sandy was such a large storm much further south and the wind field was so large, it was able to push the storm surge into lower New York Bay. That ended up moving northward into Manhattan and parts of Queens. And that's one of the reasons why back in uh, 2012, at the end of the month of October, no less, not the end of the month of August, wow. two months later in the season, uh, you had a nine to 10 foot storm surge. And that storm also occurred during a full moon, similar to what's happening with Henri. So here you have high tide occurring literally about two hours before Henri made landfall right on the coast of Narragansett, Rhode Island. It actually went east of Montauk. But a couple of days ago, this storm had the potential of being not so much Sandy 2.0, but probably Sandy 1.5. Uh, and okay. that's one of the reasons why we get concerned about storms like this when they move into such a large metropolitan area when you have high tide and when you also have a full moon. I want to uh, move on to another graphic, but I, w the coolest thing about this, in my opinion, is the the sunrise where you see the, uh, yeah. the sunrise come and then you get to see the full extent of the clouds. It's it's really uh, remarkable. Yeah, this, this particular satellite image, Mike, was actually developed up at the University of Wisconsin 
Um, and one of the students that I went to school with, Kathy Strabla, uh, is the lead scientist on developing what's called a nighttime visible. So one of the things you also notice when the screen is dark is yeah. you see the lights of the cities. So you see the lights of the Washington area, New York City area, barely, because there's a lot of cloud cover. You see the Boston area. You see Montreal. You see Ottawa. You yeah. see Toronto. Maybe a little bit off to the left there. But what they've done is they've actually taken the background, made the infrared clouds look like visible, and as you transition from night to uh, daytime, it's a seamless um, transition from infrared to visible. So this is what's called the nighttime infrared visible, developed at the University of Wisconsin, um, and it's become one of the more popular type of satellite images to use because hurricanes, as you know, can't be viewed over the ocean with the radar. So the only way to do it is with the satellites. That's why this particular product is so helpful. That's a remarkable technology. And here's uh, the, uh, the rainfall. Well, this is actually the forecast. This oh, is this the is the forecast. forecast. Okay, sorry. Yeah, this is the forecast. That's okay. This is a forecast of predicted radar reflectivity as well as surface pressure. So what you'll see is the banding of the eye on the west side, not a lot of rain on the east side because some dry air kind of worked its way all the way around. But what you see is right off the coast of Long Island, right at the tip there, right about, I would say, right there is the predicted movement of the eye basically east of Montauk, and it moves into Narragansett. So I'm watching the Weather Channel right now, but I have the sound muted. But Jim Cantori is actually in Narragansett, which is on the southwest coast of Rhode Island. And New London, Connecticut, is on the extreme southeast part of Connecticut. So where Rhode Island and Connecticut meet up, on the east of that line, you have Narragansett. On the west of that side, you have New London. And that's pretty much where the eye is coming on shore. And that's also where the storm surge is projected to be anywhere between six and nine feet, depending on the tide. That's why that area is so difficult to predict because you have not only the water sloshing into Long Island Sound, but you have the water coming back out. You have Gardner's Bay, which is the area between the North Fork of Long Island and the South Fork where you have Montauk. So you have all these different little inlets and the tides, especially when you have a full moon, could easily change between four and five feet without any wind flow. So if you get a push of water northward with a fast-moving tropical storm or a hurricane, um, you can easily get a six to nine-foot water rise in addition to the high tide, which is why they're always concerned about this particular area. So what you're showing here is the three to five-foot predicted storm surge, and most likely Areas are going to probably see about five to six feet because it looked like the high tide has already begun to subside. So the high tide in most of these areas was about an hour or two ago. I think it was between about 8 and 9 a.m. And literally what will happen is you'll if you're ever on the beach and you see a, a tide come in, all of a sudden you look to your to the over the ocean and within an hour the water is like already beginning to be pulled out. So these are not easy forecasts whatsoever, which is one of the reasons why the Saffir-Simpson scale, which is the hurricane scale that we use to rate hurricanes, no longer includes storm surge. It just It's basically huh. a Saffir-Simpson wind scale because we realized after Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy that our population has increased so much along the coast 
that we weren't doing a very good job with predicting storm surge based on the category of the hurricane itself. So in other words, you can have a category one hurricane and have a cat three storm surge. You can have a category three hurricane and have a cat five storm surge. You can have a category five hurricane and have a cat two storm surge, depending on whether or not you're in an inlet or the, or the, the high tide is pulling out. So that, that no longer includes that. Um, this map here shows tropical storm force winds, which is anything greater than 35 miles an hour. But because the storm is now below category one hurricane status, the winds, from what I've seen, I've seen some max gust about 50 to maybe 60 miles an hour. But New York City, um, from a standpoint of wind, they're going to get maybe 25, 35 mile an hour winds. That's because they're on the western side. And this storm is already kind of moving north and weakening a little bit. The concern, though, is that it's going to kind of begin to move west. And then as it does so, the rain that's on the western side will begin to wrap around. And with the Catskill Mountains um, across southern New York and some of the mountains uh, of the Appalachians in northeast Pennsylvania um, and also the Wachung Mountains in northern New, northern New Jersey, um, in addition to the three to five inches of rain that they had last night, they can get an additional three to five inches of rain. So similar to Hurricane Irene, and again, this map here is showing where you're getting the best potential for strong winds. This is no longer a wind event, but what happened with Hurricane Irene back in 2011 is you had some of the worst flooding ever in the history of the state of Vermont because that storm moved northward. You had huge amounts of rain, um, and in some areas, the rivers overflowed their banks um, four, five, even six feet. So the area that you can see, that kind of orange area, northern New Jersey and southern New York, that's the area that I was talking about. The Wachung Mountains of New Jersey, uh, the Catskills of um, southern New York, the Adirondacks are basically north of Albany. They're not in play here. But the other areas of concern in northwestern Connecticut and southwestern Massachusetts, those are the Berkshires. And those mountains are about two to 3,000 feet, but they also kind of run kind of in a northeast-southwest line. So when you have easterly flow, you get a lot of upslope. And these are the areas that also get, you know, your 30, 40 inches of snow when you have these monstrous, you know, nor'easters. So this event is going to now turn into a heavy rain and a flooding event. And they've had already some very, very heavy rainfall across the northeast over the past month and a half. The good news is the fact that the wind is beginning to subside somewhat. Remember, when Hurricane Sandy hit back in 2012, that was October 30th. Most of the trees in the Northeast were already beginning to lose their leaves. Now that it's the, the, the last week of, or the last weekend of August, the trees are completely leafed out. So it's a totally different scenario between trees that could easily lose their leaves and trees that can hold on to their leaves. So you're going to see tremendous tree damage. I don't know if you're going to see a lot of trees uprooted because the winds have already kind of lightened up a bit. Um, Sandy had 70, 80, 90 mile per hour wind gusts for about a six to 10 hour period of time. This particular storm, the winds didn't really get to that point. So I don't really think you're going to see a lot of tree damage with this. But nonetheless, whenever you have big storms moving into large areas of you know high population density, I remember Hurricane Gloria back in 1985, Hurricane Bob in 1989, and then Hurricane Sandy, obviously, in 2012. 
There were some areas of Connecticut and Long Island that did not have power for seven to 10 days. Wow. And part of it is the fact that you have so many power lines down and you only have so many people that can get out and fix them. So yeah. this is more of a logistic problem than anything else at this point. Mike. You know, I'm looking at this map here, the, that orange area in northern New Jersey. That's where my friend Green Diva Meg lives because I visited her there several years ago. <laughs> and then uh, Kathleen and I also have friends in Hartford, uh, Connecticut, and that's in the yellow and maybe some yep. orange area. So both of those areas are going to be getting a ton of rain, aren't they? Yeah. And again, this is over a three-day period of time. So what happens is the rivers that already kind of, you know, pulled in that three to five inches of rain last night now have to absorb more of that three to five inches of rain tonight and tomorrow. And the only good news is now that the rain's going to be coming down at a little bit less of a rate as opposed to the real heavy rain that came down in two hours last night. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, you know, here we got Category 1 hurricane. It's probably going to make landfall as just a tropical storm, which is okay. Um, but so I was so it, has, some, it hasn't actually made landfall yet? No, because it missed, it missed uh, Montauk. Okay. So if it would have went about 15 miles west and would have hit Montauk, it would have made landfall as a Category 1. Uh, but it looks like right now it's going to make landfall in Narragansett and most likely as just a tropical storm. But the end of the – I mean, the bottom line is it's not like someone's going to say – from the meteorological standpoint, oh, it was only a tropical storm. 70 <laughs> mile an hour, not anything to sneeze at as opposed to 75 and a half. No, no. But, uh, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, well, by the way, the thanks for sending those maps. You know, we're like a couple of hours out of date. We're not the weather channel here, but they're close enough no for jazz to get a sense of uh, what the uh, what the storm is doing. So um, it, it, <clears throat> it kind of, you know, as you mentioned uh, a couple of days ago, as you were tracking this, it just kind of mattered which direction it went. If it went a little bit east, it does one thing. If it goes a little bit west, it does another. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that happens when you have hurricanes that move this far north. They become absorbed in the upper atmospheric flow. It's not like you have something that's just basically trudging along, and the only thing that it's feeding off of is basically the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic. Those are the easy ones to predict. It's literally a straight line. But whenever you get a storm that gets kind of caught up in the flow and it begins to get nudged northward or pushed east or west just a little bit, that's when as a meteorologist you've got to be really careful two and three days out and don't go, oh, here's the latest track. This is exactly what's going to happen in this area. That's why we have a cone and not just the line. So whenever you see the upper air dynamics take over the movement of a storm, once it gets above, like, say, Cape Hatteras, you're never going to be 100% correct <clears throat> two days out. There's never going to be a forecast model that's going to be completely accurate with something like this. So it's okay to tell people, look, these are the percentages of something happening. This is what could occur in this cone, but most likely it's going to be somewhere east or west of this particular line. So if you're going two days out and saying, I slip Long Island is going to get 80 mile an hour winds, you're not doing anybody any good. Okay, let's look at a couple of maps uh, before we get to a, a forecast here. Uh, seven day period precipitation in the Midwest that was ending the 21st, so that would have been yesterday. 
Uh, n- not much going on where we are, but I see there's no. actually finally got getting some precip in Minnesota. Yeah, and, and in northern Iowa as well. This is good news for them because obviously uh, the corn could use a little bit of moisture. Uh, the ground is probably rock hard. So this makes the, um, the job of harvesting a little bit easier with that soil getting kind of softened a little bit. But what's interesting over us, and last week we talked about the fact that we were heading into a dry period. If you notice where most of the rains were, they were basically about five miles west of the lakefront because most of our thunderstorms that were developing over the last three days were off the lake breeze. We had like light northeast winds in the upper levels, and there was one little storm that developed over southern Cook County that actually produced two and a half inches of rain. Um, That's that little teeny area of green. But other than that, much of the state was dry. Uh, Michigan was dry, which is good. They needed to dry out a little bit. Um, and it does look like we may get back into at least some threat for the possibility of, um, you know, some, some rainfall as we go into Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week. And uh, the temps uh, were kind of average here from uh, the 14th through the 20th. Yeah, one of the things that was, was kind of interesting is we started out last week rather cool, Sunday, Monday. Uh, we had overnight uh, temperatures of about, you know, 55 to about 60 degrees. And you notice with the longer nights, uh, we actually had some pretty decent uh, fog and a little bit of haze that developed. There was a lot, of, a lot of dew that covered the ground that's typical for this time of the year. And then as we got into Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday afternoon temperatures, you know, crept up into the mid to upper 80s. Normal high is now 81. So literally, like right over us, we had temperatures about a degree or two above normal. But what's really remarkable is the warmth across northern sections of Minnesota. Yeah. In fact, some areas, yeah, some areas of North Dakota actually were in the upper 90s to 100 degrees. So the heat really hasn't gone away from that area, and that's the spot that we're looking for to kind of migrate eastward and bring us another shot of some pretty warm weather around here um, by the middle of the week. So the 6 to 10 from the 27th of August to the 31st shows kind of a cool spot developing over the northern Rockies. But all that does is it sends the jet stream from the Rockies right into the Great Lakes. So you got this big trough over the Rockies, southwesterly flows. So that's going to push us mid to upper 80s around here by the end of the week. And it looks like right now we can have some fairly decent departures above normal temperature-wise, um, probably into the first couple of weeks of September, as it looks like right now. Matter of fact, all the way from Colorado up into the Great Lakes, um, and this only goes out to the 4th of September, but I was looking at some extended long-range models, and they all show us to be basically above normal for the first couple of weeks of September. And this has been a growing trend, very warm end of, end of um, August, very warm Septembers, and also very warm early Octobers as well. Whether or not that translates into above normal activity for the tropics still remains to be seen. There's a lot of low-level shear. There's a lot of dust coming in off of northern sections of Africa. So Henri was not your normal canary islands azores load that developed and moved all the way across the atlantic this storm actually developed 
within like a big area of upper level low pressure west of Bermuda re-energized itself over the Gulf Stream and moved north. Um, Sandy, um, most people don't remember, but Sandy actually developed off the coast of Venezuela. I mean, that was a gigantic storm that lasted for almost two weeks. So this had the same upper level um, movement from, from a standpoint of the jet stream at a trough that Sandy had, but yet this was a completely different storm from a standpoint of their initial development. But one of the things that we looked at from a standpoint of a changing climate is as you head into the end of August, September, and October, if you maintain this very high level of jet stream action, in other words, I shouldn't say high level, but high latitude between like 45 and 50 degrees north, which we seem to be getting back into, you're going to see some of these hurricanes like a Harvey, like a Sandy, kind of like a Henri, move north and then kind of wobble a little bit. And if it stalls, you can get some just phenomenal amounts of rain. Now, Henri isn't going to do that, but it also, or but I shouldn't say also, but it does have kind of the earmarks that Sandy had from a standpoint of it moving west and also stalling and producing heavy rains. So while this is not going to have the same sort of end result that Sandy has, it kind of has the same kind of like beginnings, but yet it, yet it never really kind of got to its full potential or what Sandy could have been, you know, back in 2012. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you, Kathleen, a heads up. I'm going to go to you when we're done with Rick here. Kathleen is sort of filling in uh, for uh, Peggy today. So uh, when we wrap the show, we'll do that. But why don't we uh, get a forecast? Yeah. So uh, beautiful today. Um, if you want to go down to the lake and go swimming, be careful because six to eight foot waves offshore means that you could have some rip currents. Um, I was in a lake Thursday. It was 75 degrees. I was in a lake Friday. It was about 70 degrees. I was in a lake yesterday. It was about 65. And that's because we had strong southwest winds. So that offshore flow in the upwelling really cooled the lake down quite a bit. I guarantee you, though, if you wait until tomorrow with some light east winds, that lake water temperature will be right back up to about 70 to 75. So 82 inland today, upper 70s along the shoreline. That's it. Lake water temperature, middle of the lake is 75, which is pretty nice uh, for this time of the year. Yeah, but some but, people will like the, the the dip in temperature a little bit too. Oh, oh yeah, but today is going to be probably the nicest day of the next five. Mid-80s tomorrow, but then humidity levels really jump back up again. So near 90 for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But it does look like as the warm air aggressively moves back into the plains, uh, a couple of good shots of some nighttime thunderstorms, which, as you know, Mike, we have not had a lot of this summer. It's been kind of a quiet summer from a standpoint of nocturnal thunderstorms. And those are the ones you really like to have as a gardener because it <laughs> takes care of your watering. Yeah. And then you can enjoy Nice dry weather during the afternoon, but we have not had many of those this year. I got to tell you, uh, speaking of uh, water and um, summer and heat and humidity, my backyard, I've never seen so many mosquitoes as I have this year. And I walk, I, I go out to water my tomatoes <laughs> and I come back in with a dozen bites. It's just crazy out there right now. And yeah, uh, by, by the way, um, this may be off the cuff a little bit, but I was watching The Lone Ranger yesterday. <laughs> 19, no, you got to hear this. 
1953 episode. It didn't have the original Lone Ranger. This was when he took like a year off. And they were they were debating whether or not to fill in this bog that was producing mosquitoes that was carrying a fever that was killing people. And they were actually arguing over the science of whether or not the doctor was telling the truth and whether or not they were overreacting. Kind of wow. similar to what's going on now, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Really, that... but really, really, really cool stuff. Whoever wrote this was a genius. You got to look it up. Look up Mosquito, Pete, you know, Devil's Bog, Lone Ranger, 1953. And I'm watching this and I'm like, holy smoke. And it turned out the person who was, you know, not trusting the science took a mosquito that the doctor had in in a little glass tube, put it on himself, let the mosquito bite him. And he said, if I get a fever in two days, we can go ahead and fill in that bog. Sure enough. The reason why they didn't want to fill in the bog is because there was a dead body buried in there. That was the reason why. Oh my and he goodness. ended up getting, he ended up getting the fever. And after that, he goes, Doc, I should have trusted you in the beginning. We're going to fill in that bog. And I'm watching this, and I'm like going, holy smoke, this is like the pandemic all over again. I'll, so, I'll bet that episode is on YouTube. I am going to track that down. I'll bet I can get a clip from that and play it on the show. Yeah, That's just too cool. Yeah, 1953, and I'm watching this. I'm going, holy smoke. This is not the first time we've had people not trust science. Yeah, I mean, that's that's happened before in the past, but the fact that it was actually written to have a show built on that to then have the Lone Ranger come in and obviously save the day, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, but, anyway, but that, that's very, very interesting, and I'm I'm going to look for that. I'm going to try to track that down. So, all yeah, right, Rick. There's nothing else. Watch me TV. Oh, by the way, Mike, the golf tournament in New Jersey this weekend, yeah, was canceled today due to the hurricane. Well, <laughs> uh, it was canceled yesterday due to the hurricane. Actually, they they right, they right, right. they they knew that was going to happen, and it'll be interesting to see how much water the golf course absorbs and what they have to do uh, on Monday. They want to play tomorrow. I guarantee they won't play tomorrow either. (laughs) Really? Really? It's going to be that bad. Well, I mean, when you get six inches of rain, it probably takes some time for the course to drain. But if, since they're getting rain today, it'll never drain by tomorrow. Got it. So most likely they'll cancel it tomorrow as well. All right. All right, Rick. Thanks, man. Have a great one. You too. Take care. All right. And uh, look who's back here. And I've got your mic on and everything. We're bookending this with uh, Kathleen. Thank you so much for uh, stepping in for Peggy today. I need to turn off her mic, even though she's not there. Uh, Make sure that uh, we have the right one. So, wow, that was, uh, there was a lot. That was it was a terrific show. It was uh, uh, that really. I loved both of the guests. They were just wonderful. They were fabulous. In fact, uh, we can put this on and thank our guests, um, Juanita Irizarry, Executive Director of Friends of the Parks. Uh, amazing conversation. Uh, Marianne Wilburn and, and her contract calls for me to hold this up every time I mention her book. Um, and of course, meteorologist Rick DeMaio. Normally, I would thank you, but I'm going to thank you in person. Thank you for helping us out. Uh, Legata, no basil today, so uh, that's what we have. So uh, until next time, go green or go home. (laughs) Uh, Stadler? Uh, What? Is that it? Yes, it's over. 
How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. Thank <laughs> you.